Existing market overheads are actually fairly extreme. When the nickel market shut down, Goldman Sachs stepped in and offered a 48% spread market. That's going to have some effects on everything that has nickel in it, which includes stainless steel and batteries, for example. So that's going to have ripple effects through manufacturing for probably years to come. A 48% spread is pretty enormous. Reducing that spread, even in for efficient markets, it can easily be 5 6 or even 10%. Reducing that to 1% or 2% would effectively take that overhead cost and free it within the broader economy. We could see production margins improving by 4 to 10 points, which might not sound like much until you realize that the existing profit margins of people in commodity production run somewhere between 8 and 20%. That would make producing commodities somewhere between 20 and 125% more profitable. Noah, it's hard to give a presentation of you. I think that your profile is not something that people are used to. It's not like you go through the world with an innovative system that could improve substantially the efficiency of markets. I don't know how I should really give a presentation of you and how the audience could really wrap their minds around your the concept. Yeah, that's that's one of the things that's hard to communicate. People sort of look for boxes to put things in to help understand them better. So when you're too far out, you wind up getting slotted into places that you don't really belong. And then you have to sort of explain. It's not really even a misunderstanding. It's this category error that's sort of pre-understanding. So to create, I guess, some historical context, the system that the world currently uses for large-scale markets was discovered in the Renaissance. We have no historical knowledge that it was invented. It's generally believed that it was an accident. And even the capacity to think about systems in terms of inventing them and analyzing them for efficiency and so on is something that has only been discovered by humanity more or less since World War II. So I'm effectively the first person in centuries to have taken these tools that we've developed to think about systems at the algorithmic and information processing level and actually created a new model that has a better algorithmic efficiency. And so that's what I'm doing. So when you trade commodities, the basic thing is finding the seller and the buyer and making the transaction. So in order to do that, you've got to have a system that's efficient. No? Yes, but the important thing to understand is that thinking about these transactions in one-to-one terms is exactly the trap that we're currently in. Finding sellers and buyers is made easier by having these centralized marketplaces. The hard problem 
is price negotiation among sellers and buyers. And the reason that's difficult, because it would be relatively easy, particularly for people who come from bargaining cultures to understand how you can have a bargaining conversation one-on-one, but what's actually going on in many of these marketplaces is that there are dozens, hundreds, or even hundreds of thousands of people on each side. And even people from extreme bargaining cultures would find the cacophony of 100,000 people having a conversation with another 100,000 people, 10 billion simultaneous conversations to be too much to process. And effectively, what the existing system does is simplify what what's allowed to go into that kind of conversation and then use computer speeds to organize all of that. But it's still dealing with that extremely large volume of cacophony. And it's very expensive and not very accurate as a result of that. The CME group, uh, which is sort of the number one commodity market processor and operator on earth, actually bills itself as carrying out more than a quadrillion dollars in transactions each year. Now, the world GDP is on the order of about $100 trillion. So they're doing something like 10 times as much business as Earth is doing, and they aren't the only person in the space. So you can get sort of a sense of how much fictional activity, for lack of a better word, is going on. Because obviously, if it was all real, human GDP would be more than 10 times higher than it actually is. But is it really fictional or is it just that the way they differ in the definition of their terms? Well, from an information standpoint, what you're dealing with is signals. Signals contain basically information and noise. So you can think about as we're talking, you could think about the information in our voices as sort of, you know, the full intonations and so on. You could also think about a transcript. Obviously, a text transcript of our conversation would be much simpler to process, much less information. So in one sense, all the things about you know, what sort of vocal levels we have and any kind of intonations of what my voice sounds like or what your voice sounds like is noise if all you're after is just that textual content. When we think about signal processing in the marketplace, what we're looking at is buy and sell orders. So a buy order suggests that the person entering the order believes prices should be higher and therefore they'll be able to benefit from prices going higher after they bought. Sell order means the opposite of that. Now, of course, people are also capable of error and they're capable of lying. That's where fiction would come in. And so what we have is a signal that contains effectively a single bit, but that's only if it was a true and honest signal. And since the signal can't be true and might not be honest, it actually contains less than one bit of information. And so a system that has to accumulate signals with less than one bit of information in them in order to create the price information, which is 
very complicated in terms of how much information is involved in what day-to-day pricing or hour-to-hour pricing. And in the case of electrical grids, pricing is is sort of needed on five or occasionally 15-minute segments. But how does that happen? Isn't the bid the basic unit of information? Um, well, that's the thing. The basic unit of information is the bit. A bid is a basic signal of information within the marketplace. And we have a lot of confusion about many things because markets were information systems long before we even imagined that information systems could exist. This is where money comes from. Money is a unit of account. It's a a measuring device for information. Unfortunately, adulterating money, basically lying about the basis of information can be profitable. And so you get this whole system of counterfeiting and prevention of counterfeiting and so on in an attempt to create a unit of measurement that would be somewhat more stable. It's not until the, again, the 20th century that we determine that information actually has a objective measurement and a potential to exist outside of just some relational notion of uh, what's going on. And so then that's where my design comes in by setting up uh, forecasting markets in information rather than taking on buy and sell. I can take on full forecasts with price projections and measure the information in those forecasts which include not just where the price is going at a single time slice, but where price is going over time and provide a mechanism to integrate these different perspectives together into what amounts to a, a supermind of where the world actually believes it stands and is headed. Okay, so who are the participants in that transaction? You said that there could be many. It's not just that there's one person or the other. It's true that there can be a thousand or a hundred people, but who are the participants? So the four major poles of the marketplace are the market operator, who basically just, you know, referees and sees the rules get followed. They're the only people that don't act as forecasters and traders. And then there's sort of three hats and people can wear as many or few of them as they want. And those hats are forecaster, that is people participating in the positive sum forecasting market. And then there's producers, that's people selling into the commissioned trading platform and consumers, that's people buying from the commissioned trading platform. So since forecasting is positive sum and trading is negative sum, it basically never makes sense to wear both the producer and consumer hat. Why is it? Well, because because you're playing a negative sum game there. You're paying the commission rate. Yeah, but why is it that it is a negative sum game? It's done that way to create a gating effect to encourage people to actually put information into the forecasting market. So in theory you could know more than everyone else on earth knows and therefore take advantage of everyone on earth's mistakes and buy 
when they buy at a price that's that's too low and then sell at a price that's too high later on. Um, in practice, it really isn't possible for any individual human to have more knowledge than everyone on earth. And just for the people who think that they might be in the special category, we create a sort of incentive. We create a cost for trading in the way that isn't actually that valuable to the market and a very high rate of return for people trading in a way that is very valuable to the market. So if you have information that's not public that you believe will affect how markets are functioning, you can play this positive sum, high rate of return game rather than playing this negative sum, very high risk, relatively low rate of return game. So sensible people will do the former rather than the latter. And how are those incentives established in the coordinated discoveries market system? It's intrinsic to the setup. Essentially, you have two parameters that you get to choose when you're setting a marketplace in motion. You can choose, first off, what the commissioning cost for trading within your market is going to be. And that will establish what sort of revenue that you can expect to see for operating a marketplace and what sort of cost advantage you'll have over competitor markets, because existing markets actually can't control their transaction costs, and, and you can as an operator of a CDM. The second thing that you establish is what sort of rate of return uh, you want in the forecasting space. For simplicity, you can sort of put in a single parameter so that there's just like a annualized rate of return so if you had, say, a 100% annualized rate of return, then a, a six-month forecast would have about a 70% rate of return, since that's one over the square root of two. And you know a two-year one would have about a, a four-to-one return, because you know, it's two years doubled. But if you have some insights or other interests, you could actually create any sort of map of future rates of return that you might be interested in. If medium-term or long-term stability is very important, you could turn up rates of return for forecasts in that range to try to you know, encourage more information at a particular time frame. Once you've decided those two things, then you have the pieces required to set up a CDM. How is it that precise information is better found in CVM in comparison to the alternative? There's two effects. The first is reducing noise at the input side. So by having signals that have more information in them, we can cut down the number of signals that we actually have to process. That's, that creates a, a huge sort of cost savings in terms of computing power. The second one is that by rearranging the incentives in this way, we actually change the structure of the market from sort of an all against all war to a system where competition is preserved, but only within silos. So producers are competing with other producers, but because of how this thing is structured, they're in a cooperative behavior with everybody with their forecasting hat on and everybody with their consumer hat on. Essentially, each individual is still competing to do their best, but the thing that they're trying to do their best to do is 
take part of an ideal cooperative team effort to enable trade in the most efficient way possible. Okay. And there's a feature of your system that, that is called predetermined price projection. Could you give some thoughts on that? I'm not being able to understand that deeply. Yeah. So one way to think about this as a negotiation, buyers and sellers within a market have a good idea of their own personal economics and sort of a vague idea of the general economic state of their marketplace. So if you're a farm, you pretty much know how your farm's doing, you know, major disasters aside. And you also have some kind of an idea of like, you know, what climates moving around, things like that, that might affect farming in general, because you're interested in that kind of thing. Same thing goes if you're running a factory or a mine or really any kind of commodity production. So one thing that you could do if you weren't interested in sort of attaching yourself to the marketplace is that you could vertically integrate. You could find or buy somebody that was on the other side of your trade. So like a wheat farmer could buy a mill or even a bakery. And at that point, the market price of wheat would be irrelevant to this sort of farm bakery combination because they're making wheat to make croissants. And so what they care about is the price of croissants and fertilizer, not the price of wheat because they don't actually trade there anymore. So what they've done is essentially created a private negotiation to just transfer and enjoy the costs at the front end where they're the smallest and the profits at the back end where they're the greatest. Markets, to some sense, can glue together large groups of these types of things to create a similar type of scenario. One way to think of this forward price production curve is just an advance on that concept, a system where people who have economic interests can come together and negotiate what prices would be consonant with their own businesses and effectively create a many-to-many -many version of that sort of simple type of a system. But you wouldn't be able to leverage, no matter how interested you are in investing or in buying a commodity, you couldn't use leverage, wouldn't you? Well, that's where, that's where the rate of return in the forecasting market comes in information automatically gets leveraged across the entire marketplace. And so effectively, we give away free leverage that's radically greater than what anybody can afford to buy within the existing system, within this narrow forecasting. And then the actual physical commodities, which aren't leverageable because we don't know how to borrow corn into existence, for example, they get to live in in this more direct place. So leverage doesn't happen in the classical way, but in the sense of having a, a network of people that receiving the information that you transmitted, if they use it because they consider it to be useful, you will get some money back, wouldn't Actually, you'll not only get some money back, you'll earn a very high rate of return on the investment that caused that. You can think about it, we're, we're sort of, now that mass communication has become a normal thing, 
we're somewhat used to this notion of information striping and, and leverage across the space. So that's what we're doing here. We're having a conversation, which is essentially a private conversation, but we will then broadcast that conversation. And many, many other people can hear that conversation and gain value from it. Now, will each one of them gain the amount of value from it that we're gaining in terms of this conversation? No, each person will take from it what they personally find interesting. And measuring how those things break down is very difficult. But in the age of mass communication, uh, we have, you know, like the Nielsen ratings back when TV was the major force in the world that would sort of demographically break down and say, you know, this station or this program is watched by kids. And then this one over here is watched by people who are professional and spend lots of money. And that one over there is watched by people hanging out at home while their kids are at school. And so you get this sense of where things are, and then you have advertising that can target these, these broad demographics. That kind of information broadcast and striping, that's sort of what's going on. Where my system comes in is that by being able to measure information content and then take the information content of different messages and integrate them together into a single, much more reliable message, we get this situation where you can sort of go from something like, you know, the Facebook or Twitter fire hose to something that's more like whatever trusted news sources are these days in a way that's repeatable and predictable. So imagine if somehow there was a way to extract actual news from the Twitter stream and then use that as the feeder into actual news sources. Like I don't watch TV or, or anything, but me neither. Yeah. Imagine some sort of talking head that was capable of abstracting whatever was truly going on in the world from, you know, all the people doing sort of free reporting out there into a nugget that could actually be delivered, some sort of Max Headroom style thing. If you're familiar with that, I'm rather dating myself here, where your contributions could actually benefit you. And we sort of see some pieces of things like that. You know, if your phone happens to take an important picture, then news services will buy that picture or recording from you and, and people can make money as a result of that. Does the signal that I'm sending have an ID or a way of putting copyright into it so someone else cannot say, oh, this is actually mine, give me the money? So the signal is attached to your account. Okay. Uh, essentially what my system does is it allows you to put forward signal and an investment and the two things co-limit. So you can only invest money to the degree that your information is novel. If you're attempting to basically copy somebody else, then what the system will do when it sees that is, is essentially say, I know this already. You're not moving the ball anywhere. 
And so it won't take any of your money because you're not doing anything that's interesting. So is the information immediately exploited to the highest possible degree to the point that I'm not adding any new information by repeating what you just said one second ago? Well, that gets down to a question of the pace of the marketplace. So one key idea is that markets are currently moving way faster than they not only need to, but even should. In a world of physical commodities, it takes a great deal of time and effort to move things around. And so we get into these situations where we have ships that are moving you know, across the world, uh, a process that can take months in many cases, and the price is changing while the ship is in transit. And so a ship could reach a point where it isn't actually profitable to deliver the contents of the ship. And then it can just be told to like steam in circles out in the middle of nowhere because it's cheaper to basically waste ship time and burn up diesel or coal or whatever the ship's running off of than to actually make a delivery at a loss. And because the market's sufficiently volatile, if you put in a day or a week's delay, everything will come back again. So those sorts of things can lead you into a position where you actually want a slower schedule, one that's based on human decision-making. And once again, we're focusing on these businesses and their needs for price information, not on trying to sort of track on a microsecond by microsecond basis where this largely illusionary noise generator happens to be landing. But wouldn't homogenizing the speed at which the information is transmitted, because on one side we have speculators or the people who buy and sell as commodities or that they negotiate them, that can potentially do it a thousand times per second or more. And on the other side we have the transporters who are forced to deal with the things physically and cannot move a thousand times per second. So wouldn't reducing the volatility and forcing everyone to obey into the physical restraints of, or in a higher proportion, that doesn't necessarily need to be sudden in, in the way of let's only make one agreement a month because only one shipment is going to come a month. Maybe it could lower the amount of agreements. I'd expect weekly or more frequently daily to be a, a pretty standard pace to operate at, but it's going to be fairly difficult for more frequent than that pace to, to exist on commodity scale. And again, the key notion is reducing noise. That not only reduces operational costs, it also reduces cognitive load costs and makes it easier to operate. I've spoken to farmers and they, they watch the markets, but they've got a farm, they've, they've got a job. So they look at the markets maybe a couple times a day. Maybe they look at it once a day. Well, if most farmers look at the market a couple times a day, really only need two prices a day. If they'd be perfectly happy for, you know, to only do it once a day, then you only really actually need one a day. And so the production of 
86 billion <laughs> prices in a day. So there's 86,400 seconds in a day. You multiply that by a you know, million for microseconds. Even if you're talking about, you know, sort of a third of a day, if you're up in the, you know, upper 20 billions, uh, nearly 30 billion prices a day, that's noise. That's mostly noise. What's the problem with that? The problem is that noise degrades signal. One of the insights of the 20th century is that any given communication channel has a certain amount of bandwidth. And that bandwidth can be filled up with either noise or signal. And noise displaces signal. So the more noise there is on a line or a channel, the less signal it can get through. What's the bottleneck? It's not physical bottleneck. It's the mental cognitive load of people that are getting distracted. But in point of fact, it is physical. This is physical? another one of the interesting insights. Yes. So bandwidth is a physical property of a channel. In the case of the kinds of physical signals that we're using to communicate, bandwidth actually refers to the wavelengths uh, in the electromagnetic spectrum of the signals. And based on wavelengths, there's only a certain number of bits that can be shoved down a line in a given time frame. And those bits, things can happen. So errors that can occur during transmission and so forth become noise signals as, as part of that thing. And that noise reduces the total amount of signal that can get through the channel. Okay, but I was preoccupied by the fact that that volatility that leads some shipments to just be more worthy going round and round again in the middle of the ocean. If that volatility was reduced, Maybe the time they spend in the ocean, I'm trying to do a devil advocate's paper here. Maybe the time that they would spend in that irrational situation, instead of going down to zero in the, in the fat tail, a fat tail would be created in which the system cannot get rid of those anomalies fast enough. And so the achievement could stay in the middle of the ocean for an, an entire week. I don't suppose that's impossible, but since the value proposition of a CDM is bound to its commission. The CDM is basically all about creating valuable physical transactions. And so if you're in a situation where there could be valuable physical transactions, but the CDM wasn't able to actually get that done, then that is a forecasting failure. And there's a mechanism to, to correct that going forward. Essentially, if the forecasting market comes in at prices that create obvious inefficiencies because there's oversupply or overdemand, then there's now an opportunity to repair pricing going forward, which would, in addition to the very high rate of return that's intrinsic to the forecasting market, have an extra bonus from fulfilling that market efficiency level. So if a market was operating at say 95% of its potential, then raising market potential to its true potential level would essentially give you a five and a bit percent premium 
on your rate of return. And so in an annualized setting, that having an extra five points on, say, 100% annualized rate of return, if you're talking about the next day, that would be somewhere in the neighborhood of like a third of a percent return to fix tomorrow. But if there's this five-point advantage, suddenly you're talking about the potential for a 5.3% return over the course of a day, which annualizes to enormous numbers. So there's, there's suddenly a very strong incentive to correct any kind of mistake like that. And because the, the system has a serialized opportunity to examine itself and fix problems sort of in the pipeline as you're projecting out prices over the next few years, there's a lot of opportunity to realize that the kinds of kinks that you're talking about are coming up and plan or negotiate our way past them. And the forecasting market has a strong incentive to do so. Okay, okay. But how would regulatory costs or complications be reduced? How is it that your system will get a preferential treatment by the regulatory agencies? Well, regulatory agencies that I've spoken to have three primary concerns. The first one is that the prices that are being published are reflective of user action that can be tracked or replicated, explained. So the system shouldn't be making things up. You should be able to demonstrate where your ideas are coming from, basically. The second thing I've seen concerns about are money laundering. So is if you have a system that's moving large amounts of cash around, is it moving large amounts of illicit cash around? And thirdly is insider information. Does, are people taking advantage of information that they have access to, but not necessarily the right to take advantage of within your marketplace? And this system structurally has none of those problems. So in the first case, where prices are coming from, the way the operator operates a CDM is by once per trading period performing a effectively open books inventory of all the information that's come in and how it was integrated in order to produce the sort of super forecast that is the, the product of the CDM. So you know exactly where information has come from, exactly who provided it, and exactly how it came together in order to form the output. In terms of money laundering, because of how the system arranges trades and forecasting information, there's no way to control or direct flows of money or data. So imagine you would come up with this intelligent scheme with a friend of yours where you would bid some number really high that then they could bid back down so that you would be wrong because you know, you're creating the outlier and then your money would go to them. Well, there's no guarantee that you and they would be matched up in that way. And so 
other people may have provided the correct information, which after all is generally public knowledge. And so the money that you're injecting in this very large outlier gets spread randomly among all the people in the forecasting space. So as long as the forecasting market is reasonably robust, any attempt to use that as a money transfer tool turns into a situation where you're sort of, you know, wide casting your funds, taking a 90, 99 or greater percent hit, no longer a useful way to launder money. Trading through the physical exchange is even worse because you actually have to make or take delivery. And so there's no opportunity to just make a, a pure cash transaction. Suddenly, in order to launder money, you'd have to be running a profitable business that could only trade to the degree that it's profitable. Suddenly, you're not actually laundering money anymore. You're actually engaging in trade. And finally, insider information. The entire difficulty with insider information is bound to that thing that we started off with of having in the existing market, all trades are bilateral. So if I, through my government job or, you know, special position to, to some large player in the market happen to have information, and then I enter into a deal where you're my counterparty and you don't have access to that, that information, suddenly you're being greatly disadvantaged unfairly because I have this privileged information. But within my system, that information can flow into the forecasting market where it stripes across the entire marketplace automatically. So insider information can actually be encouraged because the entire point of the forecasting market is for people who have proprietary, private, or otherwise non-common information to come together to create a better prediction about where the future is headed. So there's no need to regulate or even detect the, the sources of information by forecasters, because it's, it's just irrelevant. What you're actually doing is benefiting the other market participants, not costing the money. And how is that made obvious? How is manipulation disincentivized and made so obvious? Well, manipulation is disincentivized because, one, it's extremely expensive to sort of outbid the wisdom of the crowd. And so mostly you're just throwing your money away. But if somehow you are wealthy enough to do this, you still can't actually change the, the actual on the ground reality of the different traders. And because the traders aren't locked into trading, pushing a price too high or too low simply disrupts the trade and then creates that condition we were just talking about where if the market is obviously not operating at or near its optimum, then there's a incredibly valuable market opportunity to nudge it back to its optimum values. So an attempt to manipulate the market is extremely expensive, very short-lived, and not profitable. Okay. How is competition between forecasters and traders eliminated? by effectively putting them on the same side. So the goal of the forecasters is to provide information about the future, which will turn out to be actionable. The goal of the traders is to examine the prices that are produced from the forecasters and trade however much or little 
is economically beneficial to them uh, to maximize their own personal economic outcomes. So the best outcome for the forecasters is the one where the maximized economic outcomes for the traders is at the highest level it can possibly be. That is the amount of value being physically transferred is maximized and not maximized you know, next Tuesday, but maximized over time. So that situation is, is essentially hand in glove. But wouldn't it pure speculation be more profitable than actually doing the trades? So there's still a, a mismatch there. Not in interest, only in activity. So yes, a person who has special access to information will earn far more money engaging in a pure forecasting scenario than they will by forecasting and trading. But the money that they make from forecasting is based on the value being translated through trading. So they make money based on other people also making money. Okay. What is the counterparty issue and why does CVM solve it? Well, the counterparty issue has a couple of different pieces. The first is that in some sense, your counterparty can not make good. This, is, this occurs at the level of general market failure. And in fact, we've seen this recently in the nickel markets where sort of the largest short in the nickel market couldn't withstand a short squeeze, so they shut the market down. The people who were doing that squeeze could have made a lot of money had the market not been shut down, but the world's number one uh, stainless steel manufacturer would have been bankrupted since, since the nickel market uh, wasn't interested in seeing their effectively most important client go bankrupt. They decided not to let those guys make that money. That might have been a good decision and it might have been a bad decision because we don't have a marketplace, we don't actually know what the answer is. In general, counterparties are always going to perform, and that's why people have to post margin to ensure that they can perform. But if the market moves incredibly quickly, you can reach a point where your counterparties aren't in a position to perform. And as we've seen with the GameStop situation, with Nickel, with other flash you know, jumps and crashes, it is perfectly possible and will become more and more common for those sorts of counterparty failures to actually exist within existing markets because it's just a feature of the algorithm. Whereas with CDM, effectively your personal counterparty is the entire rest of the marketplace. And so that's where liquidity provision comes in is by batching the system together we get a scenario where each individual is basically trading with everybody accumulated on the other side, is dealing with forecasts produced by everybody in the forecasting market. And so the counterparties are, in fact, sort of counter pools, which, because they have multiple participants, are much safer to deal with. And is access to commodities necessary? Only for people who eat, drink, require shelter, and wear clothing. 
These markets mediate energy, food, in many cases, water, the materials that we use to build houses and offices, as well as the materials that we use for our clothing, cotton, wool, are both traded on, on commodity markets. So these are the foundational items of our systems. So to the extent that having those systems is valuable or necessary, and I would say that it's incontrovertible that they are both. Do you consider the speculator to be evil? Not really. I think that bad actors definitely exist. There are certainly historical instances of, of bad actors existing. So to sort of praise them as saints, which is popular in their own circles, is, is foolish. But again, the problem that I see is at the algorithmic level, which actually makes it sort of much worse. If the problem were merely that they were evil, then we could have some hope that we could intervene, that you know we could arrest them for the crimes they're committing, for example, and take them away. But unfortunately, the problem exists at the algorithmic level. So even if somehow we could turn them all into saints, we still wouldn't solve the basic problem of having too much noise for the markets to process and consequently not producing useful price signals anymore. Okay, so you are basically disincentivizing the noise and incentivizing the actual sending of useful information. Yes, yes. And, and incentivizing it more strongly than existing markets do or even could. What are the prospects in the long term if applied in a more than 50% of market transactions of commodities, let's say, are made through your system? What are the prospects? Existing market overheads are actually fairly extreme. When the nickel market shut down, Goldman Sachs stepped in and offered a 48% spread market. That's going to have some effects on everything that has nickel in it, which includes stainless steel and batteries, for example. So that's going to have ripple effects through manufacturing for probably years to come. A 48% spread is pretty enormous. Reducing that spread, even in for efficient markets, it can easily be five, six, or even 10%. Reducing that to one or 2% would effectively take that overhead cost and free it within the broader economy. So we could see production margins improving by four to 10 points, which might not sound like much until you realize that the existing profit margins of people in commodity production run somewhere between eight and 20%. That would make producing commodities somewhere between 20 and 125% more profitable with that kind of reduction. And that would have profound effects on the total amount of economic productivity of the human species in general and, and nations in particular. Where do the cost overheads come from? The cost overheads come from noise processing, essentially. It's not free to do quadrillion dollars in transactions. And there's a large amount of spread and noise 
that people have to take bad deals effectively in order to avoid, in order not to have to pay those costs. Mm, so you avoid paying the cost by paying by more. reducing, yeah, by by using an algorithm that actually reduces the noise. Okay, okay. I think I covered everything I wanted to ask you for. Great. Where can people find more about you? Well, you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm Noah Healy, and I've got a site, Cordisc, C-O-O-R-D-I-S-C.com, where you can look up more about the idea. And uh, yeah, that's, that's what's out there. Perfect. I will leave the links to your webpage and your LinkedIn on the show notes, okay? Excellent.